So England fighting down to the wire. The five balls to be bowled in the World Cup for 92. That's up in the air. He's getting under it. This could be victory. It is. Pakistan win the World Cup. A magnificent performance in front of 87,000 people. England Khan has led his side to victory. What a great victory. It's been a team effort. The entire squad, the physio, the doctors, they're all out on the field now. And they're loving every moment of this. Imran Khan, his fifth World Cup, his fifth attempt to win the trophy. And he's finally done it. I would be terrified to be your teacher in school. Because, no, because you have a Nobel Prize. And then, like, Malala's in your class. You're like, Malala, would you like to teach the class? And she's like, yeah, I will. I wish. It just, does, does nobody ever bring that up with you? No. No? Not even my university interview. Oh, nice. You, you don't bring it up either? No, I couldn't. I was scared. But you have a Nobel Prize. Like, let me tell you something, Malala. I'm going to teach you a little bit about swag. Um... <laughs> If you have a Nobel Prize, you should start every sentence with Nobel Prize, even if it's not necessary. If you're at Starbucks and they're like, what would you like? You say, well, as a Nobel Prize winner, <laughs> I'll have the venti. <laughs> you Muslims are a very strange people. You have the best ethical guidance possible in the Quran. You had the best guide in your prophet, Muhammad. How is it that you have abandoned the ways recommended in the Quran and by the Prophet and have fallen into such a decadence? Why are you acting in so many ways against the precepts of the Quran? And so it went on discussing. At the end he looked at me and he said, you are a Muslim. I was quite astonished and I said, no, it never occurred to me to be a Muslim, I'm not. He says, oh yes, you are a Muslim, only you don't know it. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. In this episode, we are going to conclude our discussion on the partition of India, which led to the birth of the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. Before we get started, however, a brief recap of the previous episode. In the last episode, we discussed the history of Pakistan very briefly, that is. We discussed how Islam came to Pakistan. We also mentioned how British rule began in Pakistan and started with the East India Company. We also discussed some of the divides that existed between Muslims and Hindus. We discussed the cultural and linguistic divides. We also talked about how these divisions led to a political divide that ultimately led to the birth of two political parties. One was called the Indian National Congress, which many saw as a Hindu first party. And the All India Muslim League came into existence when many of India's Muslims began to feel as if the Indian National Congress was not representing their best interests. 
And then we finished off the episode with a discussion of the early life of Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who is considered the father of Pakistan. We spoke about his upbringing, his early political activity, and then we concluded with a talk about his personal life, which included his broken marriage to Rati Jinnah. And so in this episode, we are going to pick up in 1931. The All India Muslim League was struggling. They were having a difficult time. The Indian National Congress ignored them and refused to even acknowledge their existence and their claim to be a representative of India's Muslims. The British government did not take the Muslim League seriously, and their president, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, wasn't even in the country. He was in London in his self-imposed exile after his wife's death. And this would be an appropriate time to turn to another one of Pakistan's early heroes, a man named Allama Iqbal, 1877-1938. Allama Iqbal is known as Pakistan's spiritual father. Many times he's pictured wearing plain suits or some form of uh, simple traditional clothing. There's also a famous picture where his head is resting on his fist and his eyes are closed as if he's in deep thought. Alma Iqbal was born to a humble yet religious Kashmiri family. He studied Islam from an early age and eventually became fluent in several languages. He also earned multiple degrees in philosophy, English, and Arabic literature, and he also had degrees from Cambridge University and a doctorate from the University of Munich in Germany. Alama Iqbal was one of the first people to put forth the idea of a separate land for India's Muslims. And the first evidence of this was when he delivered a speech in December 1930 at the 25th session of the All India Muslim League. During this session, Alama Iqbal delivered one of the most important speeches in India's and Pakistan's history. In his speech, he outlined his vision for the future of India's Muslims. I'm going to quote what he said. I would like to see the Punjab. Northwest Frontier Province, Sindh, and Baluchistan amalgamated into a single state. Self-government within the British Empire or without the British Empire, the formation of a consolidated Northwest Indian Muslim state appears to me to be the final destiny of the Muslims, at least of Northwest India. Unquote. Despite Alama Iqbal's grand vision for the Muslims of India, the self-proclaimed representative of the Muslims of India, the Muslim League, was rife with disunity and factionalism. In order for there to be any progress towards Alama Iqbal's vision, he would have to try to get Muhammad Ali Jinnah to return to India and try to bring some unity and stability back to the All India Muslim League. So Alama Iqbal and another politician named Liaquat Ali Khan, who, by the way, would become the first prime minister of Pakistan, these two traveled back and forth between London and corresponded with Muhammad Ali Jinnah in London, trying to convince him to return to India. However, even with Muhammad Ali Jinnah's return to India, Alama Iqbal's vision of a Muslim land for India's Muslims didn't come into fruition right away. In fact, 
Most of the Muslim politicians in India simply wanted separate electorates where the Muslims of India could vote for their own elected officials. However, there were two people who did buy into Alama Iqbal's vision. One of them was Mohammed Assad. He was born Leopold Weiss to a Jewish-Austrian family before converting to Islam. Muhammad Assad was close friends with Alama Iqbal, and the two used to spend long nights discussing the idea of this hypothetical Muslim state. And this led Muhammad Assad to write several articles promoting the idea for this hypothetical Muslim state. The second person to buy into this idea of a separate Muslim state was an Indian Muslim law student studying in Cambridge, England named Chaudhry Rahmatali. Rahmatali, he wrote an article in 1930 entitled, Now or Never, Are We to Live or Perish Forever? In his article, Rahmat Ali emphasized the incompatibilities of India's Muslims and Hindu communities. And it was also within this article that we see the first glimpses of the name of this future nation. He took the letters of several provinces where Muslims were in the majority and formed them into the new nation's land. P for Punjab. A for Afghan province, also known as the Northwest Frontier Province, K for Kashmir, S for Sindh, and then Tan for Baluchistan. The I that we know of in Pakistan today was added many years later. There were some British politicians who favored gradual independence for India, but then there were others, like Winston Churchill, they only saw Indians as British subjects. In fact, there's a famous Winston Churchill quote where he says, I hate Indians. They are a beastly people with a beastly religion. Nonetheless, the British Parliament eventually agreed to hold a series of roundtable conferences to try to determine what would come of India's future. Most of these roundtable talks took place between 1931 and 1932. The Indian National Congress was seen as the official representative of all Indians at these conferences, so it was really a discussion between Britain and the Indian National Congress. Even though the All India Muslim League was present at the conferences, they were too divided and too fractured to have any impact. Despite their presence at the roundtable conferences, none of the Muslim League's concerns were actually addressed. The roundtable conferences did not lead to a definite path to independence, and this is what the Indian National Congress really wanted. Instead, the British decided to enact the Government of India Act in 1935. This was supposed to encourage gradual autonomy for India, never quite giving it full independence. One of the stipulations of the Government of India Act of 1935 was local elections. And this act actually allowed minorities to vote in their own electorates, which is something the Muslim League actually wanted. And so in 1937, provincial elections were held throughout British India. 
The Muslim League hoped to convince India's Muslims to vote for them and hopefully force the Indian National Congress to form a coalition government, thereby hopefully proving the Muslim League's legitimacy. And by this time, Muhammad Ali Jinnah was back in India. But despite all of his efforts and despite his ability, he was not able to turn the Muslim League into a viable third party just yet. The elections of 1937 were a disaster for the All India Muslim League. They only won 106 of a possible 914 seats in Parliament. They did not win a majority even in the Muslim majority provinces. However, the Indian National Congress did very well in the Hindu majority provinces. And in fact, the Indian National Congress won eight of the 11 Hindu majority provinces, giving them control over most of the local governments in India. This victory for the Indian National Congress was proof that they were the preeminent party in India and the British would have to take them and their demands very seriously. With the Indian National Congress's electoral victory, Muslims began to harbor fears of Hindu dominance. The Indian National Congress was mostly Hindu and most of the government jobs went to their fellow Hindus. This led to increased Hindu nationalism across India and many of India's Muslims felt threatened by this. Muhammad Ali Jinnah, he sensed these fears in the Muslims of India and he was able to use these to highlight the importance of the Muslim League. Perhaps Jenna was just being a bit of an alarmist, but he did use these fears of Hindu nationalism to claim that the Muslim League was the only party that could protect Muslims' rights. However, the leader of the Indian National Congress, Jawaharlal Nehru, overlooked many of these concerns and he felt that they were things that could be either worked out or they were being overblown and were insignificant. On September 1st, 1939, roughly two years after the Indian National Congress was swept into power with those elections, Germany invaded Poland. Two days later, Britain and France declared war on Germany. And as a British colony, the Viceroy of India announced that India would also be at war with Germany. The Indian National Congress absolutely opposed India's involvement in this war, which would of course become known as World War II. Being forced into this conflict between European powers was the epitome of colonialism. They were not able to determine their own future, they were being forced into a situation by their colonial masters. However, with Britain in a state of war, they weren't trying to discuss Indian independence or autonomy. The British refused to listen to any of Nehru's demands and in protest, the Indian National Congress resigned from their government positions in October 1939. Once again though, Muhammad Ali Jinnah knew when to take advantage of a great opportunity. 
the Muslim League offered the Allies their full support. And so when the Indian National Congress members resigned from government, Jinnah called on the Muslim League to step in and fill these government vacancies. So while the Indian National Congress was being viewed as traitors by the British, the Muslim League and India's Muslims in general were being praised for their support of the Allied effort. Muhammad Ali Jinnah went a step further. He went on to offer the Muslim-majority regions of Western India, which, by the way, happens to be much of modern-day Pakistan, he offered these regions to act as British footholds to supposedly defend the Indian interior from possible Nazi or Russian invasion. At this time, Germany and Russia were actually allies. One thing is for certain, Muhammad Ali Jinnah knew how to take advantage of a situation. In March 1940, the Muslim League passed the Pakistan Resolution. This is sometimes called the Lahore Resolution because it was actually passed and accepted in Lahore, Pakistan. But this resolution demanded full political autonomy for the Muslim-majority provinces of India. The Muslim League, having stepped into the political vacuum left by the Indian National Congress, had a lot more leverage and they could make much higher demands of the British government. From this resolution, the idea of an independent Muslim state began to take root. The Muslims of India began to realize that, yes, this could happen. And because of this, this day is celebrated as a national holiday in Pakistan. And sure enough, the British, who were grateful for the Muslim League stepping in to help, began to indicate that they were now willing to explore the idea of this separate Muslim state. They were willing to look into the idea of a Pakistan. The thing is, the British really needed the Muslim League's help during the war. Not only did they need their political help in keeping the Indian subcontinent running, Muslims also made up a disproportionate amount of the military. The British did not want to do anything to upset the Muslim population of India. They absolutely needed Muslim soldiers to fight the Nazis. In August 1942, Mahatma Gandhi decided to kick off this Quit India movement. Gandhi was hoping that with the Japanese army getting closer, he was hoping that this Quit India movement would pressure and frighten the British into negotiating some sort of independent settlement for India. So Gandhi gave a speech famously known as Do or Die. And within this speech, he encouraged Indians to act as if they were already independent and ignore British rule in India. Well, the British government wasn't having any of that in the middle of one of the worst wars in human history. The British government swooped in, arrested Gandhi and most of the members of the Indian National Congress. But within three months, the Quit India movement had sputtered out. Most of the Indian National Congress members, they would remain in jail until the end of the war. This further enhanced the Muslim League's ability to run the government on their own. In the end, it was the devastation of World War II that forced the British to give India its independence. By 1945, the Nazis were defeated and the war was winding down. 
With the war over, the jailed members of the Indian National Congress were released, but they now woke up to a new political reality. The Muslim League had grown significantly as a political force. They had earned the trust and the confidence of the British. The Muslim League had practically run India throughout much of the war. And with this, the Muslim League was now able to assert itself as a viable third party. Furthermore, the British now owed the Muslims a debt. In Britain itself, they had to get out of India now. They were drained of both money and men because of this devastating war, and Britain realized they could not maintain its empire any longer. Despite all of Britain's promises, and despite that Britain was indebted to the Muslim League, Muhammad Ali Jinnah still had to scramble to save Pakistan. The new British Parliament that came into power after the war, they wanted to get out of India as quickly as possible. They just wanted to hand power over to the Indian National Congress, who had been in jail for the past three years, and just leave India. It was the opposition party that had promised Muhammad Ali Jinnah and the Muslim League their support. So Muhammad Ali Jinnah had to fly to England to meet with the Tory politicians who included ironically Winston Churchill. He had to work with them and convince them that leaving India would be a disaster. And this helped to slow the British desire for a hasty withdrawal. Once again, Muhammad Ali Jinnah was able to take advantage of a situation to convince the British to see things his way. The Indian National Congress had some socialist inclinations and some of their ideology sounded a lot like communism to some of the more reactionary figures within the UK and the United States. Muhammad Ali Jinnah was able to play on these fears and he was able to hint at a possible Soviet invasion if the British left too quickly. Muhammad Ali Jinnah wanted to keep the British in India long enough to guarantee Muslim political autonomy. Well, the British just did not have the money or the manpower to maintain their empire, and they announced an arbitrary date of June 1948 when they would leave India completely. They were hoping, the British politician that is, they were hoping that Muhammad Ali Jinnah and Jawaharlal Nehru, the leader of the Indian National Congress, would somehow come to a compromise or work out some sort of compromise before this arbitrary date of June 1948. Well, the elections were held in 1946 under separate electorates, and the election was mostly about the Indian National Congress versus the Muslim League. And... As a referendum, the Muslim League did much better this time around. The Indian National Congress, they still won over 90% of the non-Muslim parliamentary vote. The Indian National Congress also won over 50% of the overall vote. Now, this was almost 10 years after that disastrous election in 1937. The Muslim League has had a lot of time to try to get their act together, and they fared much better this time around. 
the Muslim League won 90% of the Muslim vote. The Muslim League, they also won 28% of all parliamentary seats, making them the second largest party in parliament. When you control a third of the government, you definitely have leverage. This time, neither the Indian National Congress nor the British could ignore the Muslim League. These elections proved India's Muslims accepted the Muslim League as its sole representative. Now, despite all of this, Muhammad Ali Jinnah and the Muslim League, for that matter, weren't really, really pushing for a completely autonomous, a completely independent Muslim state. And the British didn't want a completely Muslim state. The British wanted to maintain a unified India. And of course, the Indian National Congress wanted a unified India. Having invested a lot of money and wealth into India's infrastructure over the past two centuries, Britain also wanted to maintain a united Indian nation. They did not want the country to break up into different nations. And so the British prime minister, he drafted a plan that would turn India into three separate zones, but still remain a united country. Muhammad Ali Jinnah and the Muslim League, they accepted this plan because they saw it as a means of getting closer to an independent Pakistani state. However, the Indian National Congress, they rejected it. They stated that they were not going to be bound by any British plans once the British left India. And so that plan was thrown out the window. The British then sent a cabinet mission down to India to try to negotiate between the two different groups, the Indian National Congress and the Muslim League. But unfortunately, nothing came from these meetings. The fact is that Jawaharlal Nehru and the Indian National Congress, they just refused to work with Muhammad Ali Jinnah and the Muslim League. Despite the Muslim League's success during the war, despite having run the nation by themselves for almost three years, despite the sacrifice of India's Muslims in repelling the Nazi threat, the Indian National Congress still saw themselves as the only legitimate representative of the Indian people. They did not see the Muslim League as a viable party. The stubbornness of the Indian National Congress is what led the British Parliament, which initially favored the Indian National Congress, as we mentioned. This led the British Parliament to finally agree to partition India. So, in fact, it was actually the Indian National Congress's arrogance, their intransigence, and their stubbornness that led to the creation of Pakistan just as much as Muhammad Ali Jinnah's persistence. And with partition agreed on, in June 1946, the British began working on their departure from India. Two months after partition was announced in August 1946, the first incidents of violence began to spark. In Calcutta, the capital of Bengal, Muslim League workers and Indian National Congress workers started fighting with each other at a public meeting. The fighting spread from there and eventually became a city-wide riot, mostly Muslims versus Hindus. In these riots, over 4,000 people were killed. 
The Calcutta riots moved the British to try to force the Indian National Congress and the Muslim League to work together, and the two parties did form a very brief and uneasy alliance. But not much really came from this alliance or this coalition because the Indian National Congress just did not see the Muslim League as an equal partner, and they were just not willing to work with them. So because of all of these problems, the riots continued to spread, even though both parties did try to stop them. The riots continued to spread throughout the rest of 1946 and on into 1947. But despite the violence, Pakistan was now inevitable. On August 14, 1947, Pakistan became an independent nation. Liaquat Ali Khan was elected as its first prime minister, and Muhammad Ali Jinnah was the first governor general of Pakistan and speaker of the parliament. The position of governor general essentially represented Pakistan before the British crown. It is the position of governor general was equivalent to the modern position of president of Pakistan. Muhammad Ali Jinnah would hold that office until his death in September. 1948. We have one more episode to do in this series on Pakistan, and in the next and final episode in this series, we will discuss the violence that came with the partition of India. We will also discuss the situation and the crisis in Kashmir, and we will look at what the future may hold for Pakistan. All of that will be next, inshallah on the Islamic History You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can get the show notes for this and all the other episodes in this series by visiting islamichistorypodcast.com slash Pakistan. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with your friends and family. You can also support the Islamic History Podcast and get access to exclusive shows by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash islamichistory. We have exclusive episodes covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the rebellion of Ibn Zubair, the Crusades, and so much more. If you stay tuned, you'll hear a short clip from one of these exclusive episodes in a few minutes. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.
And Mokhtar realizes that he has to make good on his primary promise, his most important promise, the one that he had been saying since day one, he has to get revenge. He promised to get revenge for Hussein ibn Ali and the massacre at Karbala. And so when Mukhtar hears that some Shiites went to complain about him to Ibn al-Hanafiyyah, he begins to make good on that promise and he starts the execution. He starts executing everyone who took part in Karbala that he can get his hands on. So Mukhtar puts out the word that anyone who was known to have fought against Hussein was to be brought to him. Mukhtar also organized a group of men called Ad-Dababa, or the investigators. And these men spread out throughout the city, looking for those and investigating those who were involved at Karbala. Now, some people also use this as an excuse to settle old scores. And a lot of people started falsely accusing their neighbors or whoever, whatever rivals they had, they started falsely accusing them of being involved at Karbala and these people were being arrested. Right, let's take a look at some of the more prominent examples of people whom Mukhtar killed. There's Malik ibn Nusir al-Badi. He had taken Hussein's cloak after Karbala was over. Mukhtar had Malik ibn Nusir's hands and feet chopped off and left him out to bleed to death. Abdurrahman al-Bajali, he was a Persian, and another man named Abdullah ibn Qais al-Khawlani. They had taken some yellow dye from Hussein's pockets after he was killed. They were arrested by Ad-Dababa, the investigators brought back to Mukhtar, and he commanded both of them to be beheaded. Uthman ibn Khalid and another man named Abu Asma Bishr ibn Saut. They had attacked and killed Hussein's cousin, Abdurrahman ibn Akil, at Karbala. Mukhtar's men arrested these two guys and beheaded them right there near their homes in front of their families. And then Mukhtar ordered for their bodies to be burned. Khwali ibn Yazid al-Asbahi, he had brought Hussein's head back to Kufa after Hussein had been killed, brought his head back to Kufa and presented it to Ubaidullah. Mukhtar's men found Khawali hiding in the bathroom, dragged him out, didn't even bother to chop off his head, simply burnt him alive right there in front of his, in front of his family. Zayd ibn Ruqad, he had injured one of Hussein's cousins at Karbala, a man named Abdullah ibn Muslim ibn Aqil. He had injured uh, one of Hussein's cousins. Uh, when Mukhtar's men came to arrest him, Zayd ibn Ruqad took out his sword and prepared to fight to the death. Rather than fight him, um, the commander of Mukhtar's um, uh, Dababa investigators ordered his men to just shoot him with arrows and throw rocks at him. They did this until Zaid was knocked down. Then they quickly grabbed him, subdued him, and then burnt him alive as well. Ahmed ibn Subayh, he had bragged about using a lance to wound some people at Karbala, but he insisted that he did not actually kill anyone, just inflicted a few wounds. Nonetheless, he was taken by surprise by Ad-Dababa while he was sleeping on his roof at night. When he was brought before Mukhtar, Mukhtar called for a lance and had his men stab him with this lance until Amr was dead. 
Hakim ibn Tufail, he had shot Hussein with an arrow. The, the arrow, however, did not do any damage to Hussein because it deflected off of his armor. Hakim ibn Tufail, however, he was uh, he belonged to the Ta'i clan, which was one of the largest and most influential clans in Kufa. So when Mukhtar's investiga- investigators came to arrest Hakim ibn Tufail, Hakim's family appealed to their chief, a man named Adi ibn Hatim. Adi was a very important person in Kufa. He was highly respected and he was known to be one of Ali's staunchest supporters. And Adi ibn Hatim, he had successfully interceded for other people whom Mukhtar wanted to kill. And so they sent Adi ibn Hatim to intercede for their uh, brother, for their brother, Hakim ibn Tufail. 